program is about bringing up controversial subjects and a series of quests for strange horrors. It feels good. Guidance is internal. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity. Do not think there are things in this universe which you cannot understand and which are true. Welcome to Far Off Topic, episode 32. I'm your host, Fiasco Jones, and I am once again flying solo tonight. I know what you're thinking. Boo. But that's good, because I'm in a spooky mood. And I thought I'd take this time to share some of my thoughts from a recent adventure to Perpetual Halloween Land, also known as Colorado. I was driving to Grand Junction with my wife a few weeks ago for a family wedding. I'm a fan of long drives through the demon-haunted wilderness of the outside world. The ride between here and there is a tour through extremes. In our seven-plus-hour trek, we rolled past bone-dry plains of foreboding emptiness on up through craggy mountains covered in evergreen. Our minds blissfully suspended in an ether of scrolling scenery, psychobilly horror punk, and news-of-the-day podcasts. It was while we were crawling up a mountain, uh, somewhere after crossing the I-70 junction just past Sulphurdale, when Mean Green wondered out loud about how many bodies must be buried out there. Out there, of course, being six feet below the bucolic hills just beyond our window. It was a good question, uh, an unknowable question, but one that I'm sure more people than not must find invading their thoughts as they drive through any highway-adjacent quasi-wilderness, especially those between points run for and safety. Regardless, that was the cue to start listening to some true crime podcasts. Our intent was to search for the grisliest true crime podcast we could find. Unfortunately, we weren't prepared. And after sampling a few of the offerings, we felt unfulfilled and abandoned the effort. And by this point, yeah, my mind was pretty much tuned into darkness, and uh, I felt no need to change the dial. This gave me time to think about an idea that's been gnawing on me for a while. The idea of the missing. It's a fertile ground for bent psyches determined to read sinister plots behind every hill, uh, that isolated copse of trees, or, you know, the lone house squatting far outside whatever passes for civilization this far into God's forgotten backcountry. One man in particular shares this interest in the missing, that's David Politis. A one-time San Jose detective turned Sasquatch hunter, he's now making a living plumbing this singular idea, which is what happens to the estimated 1,600 people that disappear every year from national forests. Politis became interested in the subject years ago when, like a scene in an X-Files episode, he was approached at the motel he was staying at by a pair of unnamed park rangers who claimed that something strange was behind the increasing number of missing people in America's national parks. Politis dug into the missing cases and began to discover a lot of strange things indeed, but also several telltale signs that elevated an average missing case to one of his missing 411 cases. As Joe Billman writes in Outside Magazine, Politis has identified 59 clusters of people missing on federal wildlands in the U.S. and southern Canada. To qualify as a cluster, there must be at least four cases. According to David Politis' pins, you want to watch your step in Yosemite, Crater Lake, 
Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and Rocky Mountain National Parks. But then, it would seem you want to watch your step everywhere in the wild. The map resembles a game of pin the tail on the donkey at an amphetamine-fueled birthday party. Billman continues by describing some of Politis' criteria for a missing 411 case. He lists such recurring characteristics as dogs unable to track scents, the time, late afternoon is a popular window to vanish, and that many victims are found with clothing and footwear removed. Bodies are also discovered in previously searched areas with odd frequency, sometimes right along the trail. Children and remains are occasionally found improbable distances from the point last seen, in improbable terrain. But what Politis may have really mastered is the art of elevating the mystery inherent in his missing 411 cases. He offers up the most uncanny missing stories, then steps aside and lets the reader apply their own cause. You're free to point a finger at aliens, fairies, Sasquatch, or whatever you want as a possible culprit. To Politis, it's not his place to discount any theory. To be sure, Politis seems to relish in advancing the supernatural angle. It's as if he ends each story saying, So what do you think happened? Leaving you to think, "Uh, It's chupacabras. Yeah, it's chupacabras. Naturally, that hands-off style of cause and effect has earned Politis his detractors. As Kyle Pollock writes in his Skeptical Inquirer article, People disappear. Of all the disappearances in a year, are a suspicious number of them coming from national parks? In truth, it's a difficult statistic to analyze. People do disappear, and any disappeared person must have a last known location. However, that doesn't make every location on the planet equally probable for generating a missing person. I looked into this briefly and found that, if anything, you're less likely to disappear in a national park than from a major city. The lack of any specific claim affords this idea the elasticity to be unfalsifiable, and its sinister veneer makes it attractive to the conspiracy-minded. Who's he calling conspiracy-minded? In 2019, over 600,000 people went missing across the entire United States. That is a staggering number. It's also fairly average year to year. The National Institute of Justice describes it as the nation's silent mass disaster. It's also a number that's begging for the supernatural treatment. That the majority of those missing people are comprised of runaways, child custody disputes, and criminals on the lam doesn't dispel my paroxysms of finger-pointing at shadowy culprits. Uh, What I find interesting, though, is how unsatisfying, or should I say terrifying, it is to consider that a supernatural agent would be the more palatable scenario. Uh, Supernatural cause would mean that some kind of non-human other was hunting us, rather than that it was one of us who was out there hunting other humans. Sasquatch hunting humans sounds like an understandable, if not brutal, natural order. But the idea that a network of, say, psychopaths could be out there harvesting people from the streets is pretty terrifying because it seems so much more real. And that's probably why it's part of the foundational myths of QAnon lore. Ultimately, what we're left with is the idea that hundreds of thousands of people have gone missing and no one knows a thing about what happened to them. Further, no one probably ever will. And that's the most terrifying aspect of all of this. The unknown. And maybe this story will explain why my culprit of choice is the mythical network of psychopaths. 
On June 22nd, authorities in the Netherlands raided an area along the Dutch border where they discovered several shipping containers refitted into custom prison cells. Each cell contained handcuffs on the floor and ceiling for restraining their victims. The most shocking discovery, of course, was that one of the containers was converted into a makeshift torture chamber. The torture chamber had been lined in sound-isolating panels and heat-insulating foil. In the center was a dental chair and a bag of instruments. Inside that bag, authorities found shears, black hoods, scalpels, handcuffs, a saw, pliers, and what authorities call loppers. In an eerie twist, police also found a CCTV camera attached to the ceiling. We're left to presume what or who that was for. Was this just a service the criminals were providing to an anonymous audience lusting for real-life blood and guts? Or was it there for a more bespoke group? Something tells me the cops got lucky this time around. They arrested six people at the site, but they know that there are still more people out there who were part of the operation. And I suspect there are still even more operations up and running across the entire planet. And when I start wondering where all those bodies must go, all I have to do is look outside our car. Mean Green might have been onto something when she recognized that these lonely landscapes just beyond the highway were probable graveyards. With access to a major thoroughfare, it would explain who's using all these random turnoffs along the route, which lead out of sight, deeper into the nowhere, that haunted land of six-foot holes. Or you could just distribute the bodies through the black box that is the industrial food supply, dealer's choice. My mind was still tuned to the static hum of the darkness, drawing imaginary lines from one missing person case to its respective macabre perpetrator when my eyes caught sight of a lone blue and yellow building on the north side of the interstate. As we neared the Crescent Junction, I could see that this building wasn't just one of those inexplicable outsider houses. On the large awning, I read the sign, Jackass Joe's UFO Jerky. Hmm. Is that right, Joe? Alien Jerky? That's a good cover. But I think I know what's going on here. With only 60 miles left on the trip, I felt like I'd solved one of my own true crime stories. Mm. By that point, I didn't care if it only made sense to me. Straddling the Colorado River and nestled by a boundary of towering mesas, Grand Junction is the largest town on Colorado's western slope. As you might suspect, the land was stolen from the indigenous Ute people in 1881 to make way for white folks who got started turning the place into wine country. As the town rambled through the end of the 1800s, it fit the mold of your average Wild West town. Word is, uh, Doc Holliday is actually buried only like an hour away. Now it's home to Trump voters, peach festivals, and lovely old buildings. And if you'd believe it, a lot of those places are said to be haunted. 
I mean, at least around October. I suspect that due to the explosion of ghost hunter shows, every town nowadays, no matter how large or small, is willing to promote their most haunted spaces to that special breed of clientele known as suckers. Grand Junction was no exception, and you better believe this sucker was hunting for his fix of ethereal good-good. Almost as soon as we were through the door of our Airbnb, I was scrolling through the interwebs looking for dealers in hauntological brain candy. Lucky me, I landed on a number of tasty morsels. There's the usual suspects with their imposing stone facades like the Elks Lodge 575. Inside it said you will find several different shadowy figures gliding around the building. Allegedly, some employees have even heard voices when the lodge is empty. The Elks Lodge is also said to have an underground tunnel system which connects to the other buildings in town. And you know what that means. The Cucaball has been up to no good in Grand Junction for a long time. But wouldn't you know, turns out that tunnel actually connects to another spooky building, the St. Regis Building. While there aren't many ghost stories that are associated with this building, in 2009, two videos were uploaded that seemed to show security camera footage of an unusual uh, something streaking past the camera. The videos are of a static image pointed down toward a white door. The video quality is, uh, well, it's, it's bad. It's, it's an iPhone recording of a security camera with people narrating along with the scene. It's like after dark there. In the first video, right at the 25 second mark, a wispy shadow darkens the threshold from right to left and disappears into nearby shadows. The second clip is very much the same with the shadow appearing to move from right to left moments after a man is seen exiting through the door. The light changes. There he is, see? That's fun. That's fun stuff. And I know what the debunkers are going to say about these kinds of videos phenomenon, but you know what? I'm going to leave that for another show. The big player in the field has to be the old hotel in Glenwood Springs. Known as Hotel Colorado, it's supposed to be the most ghost-infested building in Colorado, save for the superstar Stanley Hotel. If you're not aware, the Stanley in Estes Park was the inspiration for the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And maybe to solidify their mega-haunt status, tour guides have been known to suggest that the novel Pet Cemetery is based on the hotel's own Pet Cemetery, but that claim seems kind of like a far-fetched to me. But what do I care? I'm hungry for ghosts, so you tell me a good story and we're golden. Hotel Colorado is supposed to be played by many spectral women as well as a ghost typewriter, but the feature attraction is a ghost named Walter. The hotel describes him as follows. Walter is affectionately named after Walter Devereaux, the hotel's founder, and has been seen on numerous occasions around the halls and lobby during the evening. Walter's presence is marked by an unmistakable smell of cigar smoke, even though the hotel hasn't allowed smoking inside for years. Of course, some people have doubts about Walter the ghost. They think those stories are way off. These detractors believe that the ghost is actually a different ghost named Lucas. Lucas came to work at the hotel as its controller in 1893 and took over as general manager in 1905. He bought the hotel in 1916 and kept it until his death in 1927. 
at which point his wife took over ownership until 1938. Might Lucas have had more of a vested interest in seeing how his beloved hotel turned out? Lucas sounds pretty fucking lame, but he's just one of an ensemble of non-terminal repeating phantasms and class 5 full roaming vapors that are said to float all around the hotel. Suffice to say, I quickly made plans to visit once this wedding thing was over. But my favorite Grand Junction haunt site has to be the legendary Satan's House. It's one of those slippery stories that exists between urban legend and physical reality, as Nate Wilde found out in an article he posted about the evil dwelling. One story says that the house was on a pear farm, and the owner of the house's wife was cheating on him, so he set it on fire, killing them both. While stories vary, everyone that I've heard from has talked about the pit, a hole in the ground that led to the creepiest part of Satan's house, the basement. One person told me that rumor has it that satanic sacrifices were held there. Philip on Facebook even said that it was a dare to crawl through the hole to access the basement. I think I love this story so much because it reminds me of the backstories my friends and I would make up about all the out of the way bizarre places or abandoned buildings around our small town in Idaho. In one particular instance, three of my friends and I invented the lore behind an alleged figure who stalked the shadows in a rural small town, only to have an actual encounter with the legend himself. But I'll tell you all about that after the break. Hello, comrade. Are you finding it difficult to obtain the needed nutrients and energy from basic commercial food brands? This is not a surprise. The capitalist state is at war with your body and relishes the idea that every day it is slowly crushed by the machines of industry. Fear not, a food revolution is here. Throw off the yoke of capitalist snacks by choosing freedom with Wendigo Foods hamburger and sickle lunch boxes. Much like the legendary Wendigo of indigenous American lore, our delicious lunch boxes are made with people in mind. Everything is made from the nutrient-rich plants, blood, and meat donated to us by the generous governments of China and North Korea. We turn those raw ingredients into exotic, healthy meals that you'll be queuing up for day after day. You could say, we're offering a Western take on Asian cuisine. Hamburger and sickle lunchboxes are the only food product currently produced from 100% USDA certified long pork. And it's organic. Did we also mention, it's gluten free? So don't remain a slave of corporate greed and equality. Make the switch to hamburger and sickle lunchboxes now. Because at Wendigo Foods, the people are our power. It was the middle of summer, 1994, and a bunch of us had agreed to meet up at someone's house. I forget who. Their family owned several acres next to a river. It was some far-flung place in the middle of nowhere. After stopping to ask for directions, this was, of course, pre-smartphone era, my two friends and I arrived at the designated spot and found the site abandoned. 
Investigating the area proved we'd just missed the other group of friends because a few of their cars were still parked along a dirt path and fuel for a bonfire was stacked up in the center of the trees. We figured they'd just left to pick up supplies or whatever and they'd be back any time. So that's when we thought, uh, let's, uh, let's scare them when they get back. We were young. So we parked our car outside the stand of trees, hidden from view, waiting for our friends to return. As dusk turned to dark, we decided to pass the time by telling each other scary stories. I'm not sure who brought it up first, but eventually we were talking about Obi, the psychotic vagabond serial killer that stalked the area. Obi wasn't our invention. Supposedly several people who lived around these parts had actual encounters with him. So it's natural that he'd become the focus of our confabulations. And one after the other, we added one grisly detail on top of another. I bet he's an ex-con that made a pact with the devil. He murdered his family. He's probably a cannibal. He's an occult monster. I bet he can fly. As the night grew darker, it became clear that our friends were running very, very, very late which only served as another thread weaved into our growing patchwork legend of Obi. You see, by this point, through the elucidation of the weird truth that was our imagination, we determined that they weren't late at all. They were victims of Obi. They were now probably all hung up in an old barn we saw on our way to the party site, and we'd bet that it had something to do with the overly nice elderly couple we'd asked for directions when we got lost. Those were probably Obi's equally insane parents. The nice old man in his blue flannel shirt who answered the door, and his suspiciously charming wife knitting on a rocking chair. We were positive they were in on it. And Obi was probably only a few yards away, hanging our half-dead friends to the rafters of the old drafty barn that loomed on their property. We were in the middle of looping this last thread into our macabre tapestry when a fire blasted through the stand of trees. It was the bonfire. Our friends were back. Somehow, they had evaded our ambush, and now they were partying without us. So, Operation Scare the Shit Out of These Assholes was in full effect. The three of us jumped out of the car and hurried to the perimeter of the trees, fully concealed by the dense brush. We quickly separated and arranged ourselves at three different points along the perimeter. The plan, of course, was to have everyone jump out at the same instant. Screams, laughs, good times. But that's not how it turned out. We all sprang out of the bushes about the same time, but no one screamed. Because there was no one there. In the center of the trees was a blazing fire. But that's it. Understanding how fires work, we ranged around the site looking for who started it. We walked back and forth from the parked cars and around the perimeter of the camp, but we didn't find a soul. Fires don't start themselves, right? I remember thinking that before the obvious answer rushed into my head. And I could see the same thing dawning on my friends' faces as well. Obi. It was Obi. He's here with us right now there, for real, watching us. It's a trap. And with that, we were back in our car, and we left that nightmare corner of Idaho we now call Obi's Killing Grounds. Because tragically, we never saw or heard from our friends ever again. And that remains one of Idaho's biggest unsolved disappearances. 
No, that's not true. Uh, they were obviously fine. And after we talked the next day, they thought our story about Obi was dumb. But you know what? Jokes on them. Obi's real. So watch your watch your necks. He's gonna he's gonna slice them off. A wedding ritual is what brought me to Grand Junction, not my appetite for strange. And this being a wedding, I partook in the usual fare, drinks, cake, low-key dancing, and of course, the wedding perennial, cornering a family member and interrogating them about childhood interactions with the supernatural. I discovered earlier in the week, as I was asking around for places I could go to bottle a ghost, you know, as a souvenir that one of my wife's cousins had some run-ins with the supernatural when he was younger. With the ritual winding down, someone suggested I record his story. So I did. Say your name and uh, how we know each other. Uh, I'm Dad Liv Dyson and I am family of your wife. So that's who I am. And I've cornered you at a wedding. Yes, you did. <laughs> a little unexpectedly, yes. <laughs> so, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Like when you were little, you had some some encounters or some experiences with uh, unexplainable things, maybe paranormal things. Just as I was younger, I would play with what was known as imaginary friends or pets. I would chase cats around the house, which weren't ever there. We never owned cats as we were younger. Um, I'd always have multiple friends or people that I'd talk to just just as a child. Was it imaginary friends like other kids like typically talk about imaginary friends or were you actually seeing things do you think that they were actually there? To me what I remember as a child is that they were they were physical bodied and they typically weren't child they were I remember specifically a, a teenager probably about and then like a young adult in the house that we had in Grand Junction. Um, and there are two spirits that I would talk to often and just hang out with. Did they have names? I don't, I honestly can't remember any names. Now, uh, we kind of asked you too, like, do you still see them? As of now, just because I feel like growing up, I've lost touch with it all. Um, I don't really see them too much, but I definitely feel different presences. And like, just when you just enter a room, you, you can feel something different usually. There's a different atmosphere. Do you think that your family line has a kind of a connection? I mean, it's definitely possible. I mean, if we've all saw stuff, me and my mom had some couple experiences in Glenwood Springs in our condo there. We kind of wrote them off as just whatever, but I mean, it, I mean, we all have experiences at our house here in Glenwood or in Grand Junction, so it wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it past us. Other than the like when you were younger, do you have in later life? Do you have any other experiences that were kind of weird or unexplainable? I feel different, different entities in the room or different atmospheres, and I just kind of feel their vibe and just let them be. Um, I just don't try to pry into it any more than it is. It's fair to say you don't think all this is bullshit. You, you think there is something to it. There is something to it, um, and I it does get blown out of proportion and get used towards the wrong purposes, but I do believe spirits are out there and they do linger because they get trapped in between the passing world and our world and not everyone is able to pass on, so. We, we just get stuck. We, we, get, we get trapped into the pleasures of our earthly world and some of us can't leave those pleasures to move on. And we, we roam the earth and we haunt those who we wish we could still be with. We all 
carry a life force with us and we imprint on our life whether we think about it or not. We definitely leave a footprint. So. Another way to interpret Detlef's final thought is that love is eternal. With that, congratulations MJ and Casey on a lovely wedding and thank you for letting me use it as a backdrop for my ghost interviews. Much appreciated. Well, I was all set to bottle myself a ghost the following day, but a call from home changed our plans. Uh, Nothing serious, but it meant that we had to cut our trip short. So no Hotel Colorado ghost bottling for this guy. Such is life in the undead game, I suppose. To top it off, I got distracted while driving back home and missed the Crescent Junction turnoff to Joe's UFO jerky stand. All I wanted to do was interrogate the owner about what he puts in his jerky. Is it people? You know, it's a legitimate question. Maybe sprinkle little UFO questions in there. You know, normal customer stuff. That wasn't going to happen now, but as we passed that odd little jerky stand, I noticed something that could only be seen from the southbound lane heading back toward Las Vegas. On this side of the awning were painted the words Twilight Zone. I'm not sure if it's intended as a warning to travelers. Beware, the casino wasteland lies beyond with its immoral temptations and deviance. Or is it like more of a helpful reminder of why people should stay the course? Strangeness abounds this way. Well, for me, I like both. So onward toward odd normal we drove. All the ghosts behind us. So that's the show. Uh, hopefully, Jax and T, we are back on the next one. Got some fun things in the hopper, but you never know. You never know what's going to happen. So it could be another solo episode. You can reach us on Facebook and Far Off Topic Show and Far Off Topic on all the other socials. You can reach me via Twitter at Fiasco Jones and Tiwi at Tiwi Said Stuff. Get to Jax at Captain Jax 458. Clips from new episodes will be posted to our YouTube account, and you will be able to go there to find the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, feel free to comment and rate. Most of all, thank you for listening, and from all of us here at Far Off Topic, so mode it be.